I'd like to uh, do the prayer and meditation just a little bit differently, if I might. Um, uh, my name is Lady Carlson, and I, I organize with Northern and Central Louisiana Interfaith. And first of all, thank you for letting me come. Uh, and the scripture teaches us, uh, the Christian scripture teaches us that we should pray for our leaders and those in authority over us that we may lead a peaceable life. But peace, the way we think about it, is not the absence of tension. As a matter of fact, the way we think about, we in, in, in the organization I work with, the way we think about peace is that there needs to be tension because it is only when there is tension and disagreement that we can grow and that each of us can become better. And so as I prepare uh, today uh, to begin my remarks, what I'd like to pray for is our leaders and those in authority over us that we may, uh, if you will, agitate them to become the best leaders they can be because it is without us uh, and trying to disturb the peace, if you will, they will never really uh, become true leaders and really serve all of us in a way that addresses not only people uh, of means but the least of those among us. And so my prayer today, again, is for our leaders those in authority over us, that they make the kind of decisions uh, that also aid families who don't always have a voice and cannot always speak for themselves. Amen. Now, you guys are pretty quiet. I'm, I'm Baptist, okay? I'm used to people saying amen and moving around and being noisy. And what I'd like to speak today for a few minutes about is uh, uh, blessed are the history makers. And there is a scriptural scholar, a man named Walter Brueggemann, who has a book called Hope Within History. And Brueggemann says that there are two groups of people writing history. One, he says, is the rich and the powerful, and the other is God's people. And he says that when God's people write history, that they write history with this notion of this, a sense of justice. But justice not in the sense of an eye for an eye. Justice in the sense of how we treat the least of those among us. And, and he uses Matthew 25, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison and sick, you visited me. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And he uses the example of the Exodus story. You know the Exodus story in Genesis? The Hebrew children uh, have been living in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, uh, I, I love the scripture that says, And there was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And so he got concerned that all these people... You know, all these people on the fringes in Goshen were reproducing and they were having all these babies. 
and they were enslaved. And so he thought, you know, I got to do something about these people because they're just having too many children. And so he sends the midwives to kill the Hebrew boys. Moses is hidden. You know the story. Moses is hidden and he becomes. Now, the way I like to think about it is Moses becomes an organizer. (laughs) And he organizes the children of Israel. And he says to them, you know, all we have to do is start to cry out to God and organize ourselves and we can leave this place and we don't have to be slaves. And they're like, who are you? (laughs) Who is this man that says, you know, my father and my father before me and his father before him, all of us were slaves. And here this guy comes and says, you can be free. What a revolutionary idea that is. Brueggemann says that there are steps to what he calls faith development so that God begins to move in history through this notion that we call hope. The first thing he says is that, is that there, there has to be what he calls a critique of current ideology. You have to start looking around and saying something is wrong. That, you know, the world is not perfect the way we know it, and it can be made better. And again, for Israel, that was that they were in slavery. For us, everything in Shreveport, Bossier, oh my God, is not perfect. Oh my God. Go figure. There are some things that we can do to make our community better. A critique of current ideology. Now, that doesn't say we don't live in fine communities, okay? That just means that our communities can be better. Then the second thing that Brueggemann says is that there has to be what he calls this public processing of private pain. And for Israel, that was the the crying out to God, deliver us, we are slaves, deliver us. In the organization I work in, Northern and Central Louisiana Interfaith, we use house meetings. House meetings don't have to be in your home, but they are small gatherings of 10 to 15 people where we say two things, what will make this community better? But the second question is, what are you willing to do about it? So you can't just murmur and complain. You know, all of us, all of us know what's wrong. But the thing is, are we willing to do something about it? Then Brueggemann says that there has to be what he calls a release of new social imagination. And I'd like to dwell on that for a few minutes that notion of imagination. I'm 51 years old. I'm sorry, I'm 56 years old. I was born in 51. (laughs) And when I was born, I lived on the west side of Port Arthur, Texas, in a segregated community where the only white people I saw were men, and we were taught to run. 
as little children because they were either up to no good or they were the police and they were going to arrest us. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that was my impression. I never saw white women except on television. Never saw Hispanics. Although they lived, we lived on one part of, of the west side. You cross the track. There were Spanish-speaking families. And then the further east you went, it got, and I never saw. And so I grew up in this neighborhood with only African-Americans and a lot of fear. <laughs> but I went to school with teachers. And, I, and, and again, I, I, I'm painting that picture because imagination is important. Release of new social imagination. In the colored schools I went to, with the colored teachers, now you know that in, in that with some African Americans, we, we're not supposed to say colored because that's not politically correct. When I was a little girl, I was colored, okay? <laughs> colored teachers, colored schools, and they told us one day one of you could be president. Now you got to understand the irony of that. My parents couldn't vote. And yet they said, one day, one of you can be president. Now, I don't know about the other kids in my class, but you know what? In my mind's eye, my imagination, I could see one of us going on to be president. Now, you guys ain't saying, you just missed a great place to say amen. <laughs> but imagination, the ability to live in reality, you got to live in reality, but also the ability to dream that things can be different. Scripture says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Those little colored children on the west side of Port Arthur had a vision that not only would life be different, but that it was up to us to make it different. And so we believed that we had a charge to change the world to change America, but to change it for the better. Where there is no vision, the people perish. In house meetings in, in uh, Shreveport and Bossier, Interfaith said to people, what would make this community better? And both white families African-American families and Spanish-speaking families said there are good-paying jobs here, but the buses don't run in the th on the second and the third shift for people to get there. And where there is no vision, release of new social imagination, other people said, you know, we've talked about this for years and years. It's not a new issue. And we know, but the city, for whatever reason, just won't do it. But some of our other leaders said, that's okay. We're going to persevere. We're going to stick it out, and we're going to make this happen. 
It took a couple of years, took meetings and going forth and going back, but it happened. And I don't know if you know, but uh, Shreveport got an award from the Louisiana Municipal Association for extended bus hour service. They've only given that award three times, and Shreveport was one of the recipients. And over 100,000 people have ridden that bus on the after-hours bus service. Release of new social imagination. That I have this vision, I think it could happen, and I dare to dream it, but then I dare to organize to figure out how to make it happen. You just missed another great place to say amen. <laughs> then Brueggemann says that there are enemies of hope. One of the things he says is an enemy of hope is silence. And he uses a story of blind Bartimaeus. Y'all know blind Bartimaeus? He's a guy in the New Testament that's a beggar, and they put him on the side of the road to beg for money so that he can support himself. So here's Bartimaeus. He's going through his kind of regular, normal day, his regular routine. You know, he's on the side of the road begging. And he hears this noise and this tumult, and he wants to know, What's going on? And they say to him, now Bartimaeus, haven't you heard? Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And Bartimaeus begins to think, you know, it's like, here I am. I've been here for 70 years, begging on the side of this road, barely getting money. And this, this guy, this man, Jesus, that I've heard about, could it be the same Jesus that they say, you know, has raised the dead and, and opened blind eyes and, oh, my God, is this my day? <laughs> and so he begins to figure, well, if Jesus is coming and he's coming this way, this is my opportunity to have him open my eyes and give me sight. So Bartimaeus hears this noise, and he begins to shout out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd is there, and, and, and you know, the people that, that make the mayors there, because Jesus is coming, and all these people are visiting his town. And the city council is there, you know, because they want to see what's going on. And the judges are there, and, and they want to see what's happening. And, and here's this blind beggar, and he's saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. And they're like, Bartimaeus, you've got to be quiet. We don't want Jesus to know we have homeless people in our city. Bartimaeus, you've got to be quiet. We don't want Jesus to know we don't pay living wages. We don't want Jesus to know that people in our city have to be on the side of the road because they can't make a living to support themselves. Bartimaeus, we don't want Jesus to know that our health care system doesn't work. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. Lord, that I might receive my sight. Silence is an enemy of hope. 
when we don't talk about the fact that there's no extended bus service, when we don't talk about the fact that, that our folks need living wage jobs, that health care is broken, silence is an enemy of hope and God moving in history. Then Brueggemann says another enemy of hope is contentment. And he talks about the rich young ruler. You know that guy, he has a beamer. Although, I got to tell you, I may have to use a new illustration. He has a jaguar. <laughs> and, and, and he has a, a Lamborghini, you know, and, and his crops are doing well. And, and he's just bought, bought a 3,000-foot mansion. He's going to tear it down and build a 20,000-foot mansion. You know the guy. He's well off. Life is good. His kids are in Harvard. They go to MIT. You know, the guy, he's doing, he's done good by himself. And he looks around and he surveys and he says, you know, my 401k is doing well. My stocks are soaring. I'm going to just tear this house down. I'm going to throw a party tonight. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And then tomorrow I'm going to start all over again. But the scriptures say, The Lord said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Contentment is an enemy of hope. When we see our kids, you know, and I, 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 I tell this story all the time. I have three children. I have two sons and a daughter. My sons are 40 and 30, and my daughter's 33, but my children are doing well. And yet every time I hear the stories of young men being killed, of young men in prison, of young men being shackled, I feel that. I feel that. When I grew up, again, I grew up in segregated society. When I see uh, uh, immigrants shackled, <laughs> you know, shackled, and being deported like they're prisoners, like they're criminals, only because they've tried to make a life for them and their families. I feel that. I feel that. Contentment is an enemy of hope, and I, I can't be content when we live in a community where everybody is, where the playing field isn't level and we're not trying to figure out how to make it level. And a part of what interfaith does is work to figure out how do we level the playing field in a way that says we all need an equal shot at trying to figure out how to make and live the American dream. Am I bit, does this make sense? Contentment is an enemy of hope. Then the last enemy of hope, Brueggemann says, is technology. When I grew up, we didn't have, we had a washer, but that washer had a ringer on it, you know, and you'd wash your clothes, you'd wring it, and then you'd hang them outside. We didn't have air conditioning. So we all sat outside. 
I, we didn't have a TV until I was about 10 years old. And so we had to talk to each other, talk to our neighbors. You know, we had to associate with each other. We couldn't drive in the door, close the garage, and never see our neighbors. And so we were in close quarters. We were in close quarters. And, and, and it, it caused you because you, you couldn't stay inside. So all you had were those fans in the window, you know, and all they did was circulated hot eat, heat. And so you stayed outside until it got dark. And you all played together, and you ate together, and you fought together. And, you know, you just kind of you had to build those relationships with each other. And then we got air conditioning. Now, let me be clear. I don't want to go back to hanging clothes on the line. I kind of like air conditioning, you know, but it's okay. But I don't want to go back to not having it. I don't want to go back to what we didn't have before. But we got air conditioning, and then we, we went inside during the heat of the day. We went inside in the evenings, and so we stopped talking so much. We stopped associating so much. We got all these modern conveniences. We looked at TV, and so, you know, that kind of eliminated conversation. And, you know, and I like my TV. <laughs> Love looking at the BBC, okay, so I don't want to give that up. <laughs> But technology is an enemy of hope because a part of what it does and a part of what we've seen happen is that it's made us more isolated. We don't have to see our neighbors. We don't have to talk to each other. We don't have to figure out, you know, depending on your political bent, you can look at CNN, you can get one view of politics, you can look at Fox, you can get at a, look at another view. And you can argue with the TV. You know, you don't, we don't have to argue with each other. We can argue with the commentators. <laughs> the other part of technology is those people, you know, and, and again, it, you have to understand the, the context of this. But another enemy is, you know, all those people downtown, those city planners that don't visit neighborhoods, and they decide what your neighborhood should look like. And they decide what should happen in your neighborhood. In about 1970, uh, uh, probably more about 1965, Urban Renewal came to Port Arthur. Y'all know Urban Renewal? Now, why Urban Renewal wanted to come to Port Arthur, Texas, is anybody's guess. Port Arthur is not on the hot spots. It's not a place you're going to visit unless you know somebody. But Urban Renewal came, and they took a perfectly good neighborhood, and they said, and this is a federal government, okay? Urban Renewal was a federal government. We're going to buy this block out, and you don't have a choice. <laughs> you don't want to sell tough. We're going to use eminent domain. We're going to take these houses. We're going to tear them down. We're going to build new houses and put different families in. My grandmother and I were, lived in one of those houses. And so it was like, okay, why? Because this is what's best for the community. And we know what's best for the community. So they tore the houses down. 
they forced us to move. And then basically what happened was that a, a new group of people came in. One gentleman bought two lots, built two houses, but they destroyed the neighborhood. It was not in conversation and not in relationship to that community. When we let somebody here, you know, the big hand, somebody here, decide what's best for our communities without us being, and I'm going to go back to this, being organized, because there was nothing my grandmother and I could do. We didn't have a group of neighbors that were fighting with us. But when you organize yourselves and you say, now, wait a minute, we don't think this makes sense and we want a voice in the decisions about what you're doing because we don't agree that this is the best for this community. Technology and the tyranny of experts are an enemy of hope. Your responsive reading today was the Beatitudes. And one of the things in the Beatitudes is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the angry. In the Greek, that word is angry. Interfaith is an organization that wants to tap into your anger. And you know, a lot of us are afraid of that word, anger. But your passion, because you will act on the things you are passionate about. And a part of what we're trying to find is people that are passionate about working for justice. Again, justice not in the sense of an eye for an eye, but justice in the sense of Matthew 25. For you shall inherit, inherit the earth. It is as we learn to come together, to work together for the common good, that we are able really to change our communities in a way that say we are writing a history that has to do with how do we create just societies. Now, the final thing I'd like to say to you, and again, I'm Baptist, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a black Baptist church and they, the preacher says, and I'm closing, in my closing, and 40 minutes later he said, in my closing, but I'm really closing. The final thing is this. There was a, a Jewish philosopher, a woman named Hannah Arendt. And Arendt escaped Nazi Germany, and she spent her life trying to figure out what went wrong. And Arendt says two things that, well, she says a lot of things, but two things in particular about Nazi Germany. One is that they lost their capacity for judgment. 
because everybody they were with agreed with them for the most part. You know, now there were some people that dissented, but for the most part, they were only around people who thought, looked, talked, ate like they did. And so there was nobody there that challenged them about right and wrong. The other thing Arendt says is this, that when we are only around people that are like us, that we never develop our greatest human potential and we never become who we really can be because we're only with people that are like us. And so there's nobody to challenge you. There's nobody to say, why do you think like that? And why do you believe this is right? And I don't agree with that. And, and that I'll never know what it's like to be, what it's really like to be an African-American female until I understand what it's like to be a white man or to be uh, a, a, an immigrant family or to be, to be poor or to be, that I'll never develop my potential until I'm around people that are very different from me. And so a part of what interfaith does is brings people together that are very different, encourages them to have honest conversations. You know, I think black people are whiny, you know. know? Or I think white people are all racist, you know. Or I think immigrant families need to protect, need to come in legal. But we need those kinds of arguments. You know what I'm saying? We need to suspend judgment. We need to come to the fact that I'm not all right and you're not all wrong. Have the kinds of conversations where we grow from each other, but that then we work for the common good, for the common good of our communities. And we see ourselves as writing a history that allows the the breath, if you will, of God and the spirit to breathe on our decisions and to breathe in a, with it, within us in a way that says, I can't make it in this community if I'm not in relationship with you, but you can't make it if you're not in relationship with me. Blessed are the history makers. I'd encourage you to check out Interfaith, check out the work we're doing. Because in the end, what we're working to do is create a just community where we all figure out what justice really is together, where we're not isolated, but we're figuring it out together, and we're working with with each other for the common good. Thank you.